I've got a very important question to begin with. Do you believe in zombies? <laughs> zombies are so hip right now, aren't they? Zombies are everywhere on TV and movies and advertisements. You can't escape zombies, literally. You can't escape them. They're coming for you. They're going to eat your flesh. So much so that my other daughter, not Jasmine, but my other daughter, Xanthi, a few years ago when she was younger, said, Dad, are zombies real? And I said, of course they're not real, sweetie. But you know what? I was wrong. Zombies are real. In fact, zombies are in the Bible. Did you know that? I'm going to prove it to you if you turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I will show you zombies in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead and you were walking. You were the walking dead. You were a zombie. <laughs> Zombies are in the Bible. And this is quite a bleak uh, picture that Paul begins with in Ephesians chapter 2, calling his readers former zombies, the walking dead. Why are they dead? What does it mean? You were dead in the trespasses and sins. Your trespasses and your sins caused you to be spiritually dead, as well as later physically dead. You die because of your sin. But here we're talking about spiritual deadness. A trespass is a rule that you break. It could be one of the laws or it could be something that someone says, but you actually transgress it, whereas sin is more general, a general rejection of God in whatever form. So a trespass is actually a subset of sin. He's He's really saying that your sin has caused you to be spiritually dead, has caused you to be cut off from God. You once walked, though, even though you were dead, you were walking. And walking is a metaphor for the way that you conduct your life. So even though you're dead, you're walking. That's how we know he's not talking about literal death, physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. You can be dead in your sins while living. Following the course of this world, following whatever goes on, whatever trends are cool, whatever is politically correct, whatever the world suggests to you as being morally right or desirable or good, the world is setting that agenda for you. But not only the world. He says you are also following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who is this prince of the power of the air? Remember before I said that this letter to the Ephesians, Paul addresses those powers that are unseen, that are in the background, these spiritual powers, often evil powers. He's talking about one of those, and he's referring specifically to this prince. Most interpreters understand this to mean Satan the evil one, the devil. Why doesn't Paul just say that? Is it because Satan, you know, it's the name that must not be named? Or maybe it's more that Paul is describing who he is. 
and what he does. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's referring to the spiritual realm over which that part of the spiritual realm over which the evil one has power and is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, unbelievers, that's who he's referring to. And he's saying that this prince of the power of the air is actually at work in them, actually interacting with them, actually influencing them. But it's not the case that you can just say, well, the devil made me do it. Because he goes on to say, Later on in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In other words, he's saying, you can never rock up to God on the judgment day and say, well, the devil made me do it. I'm not responsible because Paul says, the devil influenced you, but you were really carrying out your own desires, the desires of the body and the mind. And he's not just pointing the finger at his readers saying, this was you. He says, we too, we all were like this. Like the rest of mankind, we were children by nature of wrath. These three verses at the beginning of Ephesians 2, I think are some of the bleakest descriptions of humanity. Spiritually dead. Cut off from God following the world, the devil, and the flesh. This triumvirate of influence that causes us to live in a way that is rebellion against God. And the power of this image of being dead means that really you're you're helpless. Once you're dead, you you can't fix the situation, can you? Once you're dead, it's too late to mend that relationship that was broken, to apologize to that friend that you were so mean to that time, to restore the relationship with your sibling or your child or your parent. It's too late because when you're dead, you're dead. And that's it. Dead people can't fix things. When you're six feet under, it's over. And so the point is, when you are spiritually dead, you cannot fix it. You can't fix your relationship with God. Because you're dead. You're cut off from Him. And dead people can't fix relationships. And that's a very important first point in this chapter because it really undergirds everything that's going to follow. If you are spiritually dead because of your sins, if you are zombies, the walking dead, if you are really cut off from God, unable to reach out to Him, unable to fix your standing with Him, your only hope is if God fixes your standing with Him. And that's what we see in verse 4. But God. God is the solution. But God. You might remember that song from a few years ago, I like big butts and I cannot lie. Well, this is a big but. A different kind of but. 
but it's one of the biggest buts in all history. But God, you were dead, helpless, cut off, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive. You see that? But God. God had to do something about it. Why did He do something about it? Because of His mercy and because of His love. That's why. It's not because you were such an attractive zombie. He wanted to keep you around, gnawing on human flesh. It's not because you were such a good zombie that you impressed God. No, it's actually not really about your performance at all. It's actually about God because He's rich in mercy and because He loves us. Mercy and love, that's why. He did something about it. God took the first step. God made the first move. God was proactive. God did it. And even though we were dead, verse 5, He made us alive. But that's not all it says, is it? He made us alive together with Christ. Made alive with Christ. There is our union with Christ. This talk is about being raised with Christ. The last talk from Romans 6 was dying with Christ. His death becomes your death. Now we see that His resurrection becomes your resurrection. Instead of staying spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins, instead of remaining spiritual zombies, God, because of His mercy and love, reached out and gave us new life, raised us, and made us alive together with Christ. Now, in verses 8 and 9, these are everyone's favorite memory verses. If you, if you don't know those verses, don't worry about it. We'll get to them. But the point is, Paul is going to get to this point saying, by grace you have saved through faith. Okay. But even here at verse 5, he can't help himself. He has to squeeze it in here, even though he's not there yet, where he's going to really unpack that. He just inserts it here. He can't help it. By grace you've been saved. And that must be the case because of what he's already said. You were dead, helpless, cut off from God, unable to do anything about it. But God, because of his mercy and his love, made you alive with Christ. Therefore, it must be by grace that you're saved. It must be. Because you couldn't contribute anything. Zombies don't contribute. They're just dead. And he goes on in verse 6. He made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we saw a lot of that in chapter 1 of Ephesians, didn't we? In this chapter, we're going to see that and with Christ. With Christ is part of our union with Christ too. It refers to our participation with Christ. 
That's the dying with Christ from Romans 6. And here it is the rising with Christ. We're made alive with Christ. We're raised up with Him. We're seated together with Him. Even in the heavens, that's what it says. In other words, you go from being six feet under in the ground to being lifted up into the heavens and seated with Christ. That is quite a transfer. Under the ground to up in the heavens in Christ with God. Now we might struggle a little bit with that idea. What does it mean to be seated in the heavens? When well, it looks like we're still here on earth, right? What does it mean? Is it just a metaphor? Is it just a kind of poetic image? No, I don't think so. Not at all. I don't think this is a metaphor. I think this is absolutely real. But it's spiritual, not physical. It's spiritual, not physical. Just like dying with Christ just like rising with Christ. So we ascended with Christ. Because once you believe in Jesus, you hitch your wagon to His wagon, remember? You hitch your camel to His camel. He goes down to the grave, you go with Him. You're baptized into Christ's death. You're buried with Christ. And so He raises up from the dead, you go with Him. But he doesn't just rise from the dead. He ascends to the highest place at God's right hand. And we ascend to the highest place there with him. We're not at God's right hand. Only Jesus is there. But we're seated around him. Spiritually, we've been raised from the dead. Spiritually, we have been ascended into God's very presence. And you might think that's weird because we're here and heaven's up there, but heaven isn't really up there. That's the way the Bible talks about it sometimes to help us picture it. But it's not really up there. It's actually a different dimension. That's what heaven is. It's the spiritual realm. And just as the evil one can interact with human beings now who don't believe in Christ, though he's in the spiritual realm, so we can be in God's presence now. Because by being connected to Christ spiritually we have entered into that spiritual realm that is where we truly reside spiritually and when we die physically and when jesus returns and we are raised physically then we're told in the bible that the spiritual realm and the earthly realm are going to become one and we will dwell together with him in spirit and in body but spiritually, it's already happened. We are in the very presence of God. This one's a really hard one to illustrate. It, there aren't many examples like this out in the uh, world out there, but I did see one once about 20 years ago on TV. And especially on TV, you don't see many things that illustrate this, but this was a really remarkable moment. I just turned the TV on at the right time. It was one of those award shows, you know, the Golden Globes, TV awards and i usually hate these shows you know people get up there and they want to thank their third grade teacher and their tennis coach and all this sort of thing maybe throw god in there too whatever it just makes it worse but 
in this Golden Globes, it was in 1998, so it was 20 years ago, I saw one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen on TV. So Ving Rhames, speaking of Mission Impossible, you remember Ving Rhames? He's Luther in, the, in that series, okay? Ving Rhames won an award for Best Actor in some, some TV movie or something that he did. And he, he comes up on the stage and he walks up to the podium and he says, is Mr. Jack Lemon here tonight? Now, does anyone know who Jack Lemon is? Sort of like, yeah, okay, your parents, your grandparents, if you don't know. <laughs> no offense, Steve, sorry. <laughs> but he was a famous actor from the 60s, right? TV actor, well-loved actor. And Ving Rhames calls out Jack Lemon. Is Jack Lemon in the house tonight? And everyone's like, what? This is highly unusual. What's, what's going on? You know, in the spotlights, they haven't planned for this, so they're sort of like going, where's Jack Lemon? Find him. Oh, oh, there he is. And they find him. They zoom in on him. And Jack Lemon's like a deer in the headlights. I don't know what's going on. What's happening? And Ving Rhames says, Mr. Jack Lemon, would you please come to the stage? And everyone's starting to whisper, and like there's this air of anticipation. What's going on? What is this? highly unusual. And Jack Lemon's still going, I don't I don't know what's going on. Mr. Jack Lemon, would you please join me here on the stage? And so Jack Lemon gets up and people don't know whether to clap. What were they clapping for? Not really sure. They're sort of, I don't know. But there was a real buzz of anticipation. And he comes up on the stage and he stands next to Ving Rhames. And then Ving Rhames says, I've always believed that being an artist is about giving. And he took his Golden Globe statue thing. He said, I would like to give this to you, Mr. Jack Lemon. And he gave him his Golden Globe. And people just went crazy. Like people were crying and they were cheering. It was really a beautiful moment. And Jack Lemon later said that was one of the nicest, sweetest moments of his entire life. Now, Jack Lemon did not win the Golden Globe that night, did he? He didn't win it. Ving Rhames won it. But he was invited to share in that award. And that's a little bit what this is like. God made us alive with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavens. We didn't deserve to be there. We don't deserve to be there. We didn't win the prize. We were invited to share in what Christ has achieved, in his victory over sin and death and all the powers. It's his victory. He shares it with us. That's union with Christ. That's being raised with Christ. It's sharing that spot on the platform next to him, in the lights. It's even sharing in his glory. But you know, there's a purpose for this beyond our benefit. We see it in verse 7. It's so that in the coming ages... 
God might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's so that in the coming ages, in the future, God might show us the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So we get to share in the victory of Christ, in His resurrection, in His ascension, in His being seated in the heavens, so that God can show us something. Something about Himself. It's so that we might see just how amazing His grace is. So that we might be blown away by the incredible extent of His kindness. So that we might really see God for who He is. And glorify Him forever. You know, when we talk about what God has done for us and His grace and His kindness to us, if you really understand it, you'll be amazed. If you really understand it, you'll think, wow, what sort of God is that? A beautiful God. Such a loving God. A God full of rich and mercy. We can, we can get that. But you know what? We still don't even get that. We see it, but there's so much more we don't see. It's like our sin, I think. You can get that you're sinful. You can get that you're a zombie. You can get that you're spiritually dead. But we don't even see just how deep it goes. We don't see how thoroughly corrupted we are in thought, in mind, in heart. So we don't fully see he, Him for who He is. Not fully. But on that day, we will see it. We'll see it fully. In the coming ages, we're seated there in the heavens with Him. And we will really get it. And we will be blown away. Has it ever worried you that, you know, the Bible says we're going to rejoice and give glory to God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever for all eternity? And you're like, man, isn't that going to get tiring? Isn't that like, you know, okay, now, when you really get who God is and the riches of His kindness to us in Christ, yeah, every day, every day for eternity, you'll be like, wow. Wow. It's not going to get old. It'll never get boring. You'll praise Him forever. Then we come to the famous verses. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. These verses are very important to Protestants who want to emphasize that we are saved by grace through faith that we don't contribute to our salvation, just like I was telling Dave, the trombonist. It's not about what you do, it's about what Christ has done. Because we're saved by grace, through faith. But what I hope you can see now is that is simply the inevitable conclusion of the argument that Paul has been making from verses 1 to 7. That is the inevitable conclusion because we begin with point one, you're dead, Point two, God made you alive. Point three, obviously you have to be saved by grace. It's the only way it can be done because you were dead. God had to do it, which means it's by God's grace. 
not by your works. Now, grace is a tricky word. You know, it's a church word. In the church, we tend to know what it is, or maybe there's some here who don't really know for sure exactly what it is. And we don't use the word the way the word is used outside the church. What grace means outside the church is something like, well, she conducted herself with such poise and grace. You use that word for ballerina or a, or a, a model, something like that. But grace here simply means gift. So verse 8 means, by God's gift, you have been saved. And I would even sharpen it a little bit. I would say, pure gift. Pure gift. By God's pure gift, you have been saved through faith. The reason I want to say pure gift is even the word gift can be misunderstood and not appreciated properly because of the way we tend to give gifts. Think about Christmas. Well, I have to get you a gift and you have to get me a gift. First of all, there's the obligation. Have to. Second, we have this horrible thing, at least in the United States, called the exchange of gifts. If it's an exchange, it's not a gift. <laughs> it's a swap. It is a swap. And you know it's a swap because you, like me, have felt that awkwardness when they got you a gift up here and you got them a gift down there. And you're like, oh, that feels so awkward because it's a swap, it's not a gift. <laughs> Ironically, at Christmas, we don't give gifts. We swap our stuff. <laughs> or then what about birthdays? Even on birthdays, there's an obligation, first of all. Now, there's no swap, but still, you're like, are they going to like the gift? Was it a good enough gift? And you might think, what did they give me for my last birthday? You still want the comparable thing. But most of all, the problem is it's an obligation. Now, sure, sometimes we give a gift at a birthday that you really want to give, and it, 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 it really is a gift. But this is a good example of a pure gift. When someone gives you something, and I don't mean like a stick of chewing gum or something. I mean a significant gift for no reason. Has that ever happened to you? Did someone give you a car? Or maybe a house? I know someone who was given a house. For no reason. And you say, whoa, hey, it's not my birthday. It's not Christmas. I didn't just graduate. What's this for? And you say, no reason. You go, oh, I can't accept it. I can't accept that. They say, I gave it to you because I love you. That's why. A gift given out of love for no other reason is a pure gift. Not a swap, not an exchange, not out of obligation, but because of God's mercy 
and love. That's why he gives the gift. It's a pure gift. And it's by this pure gift of being raised with Christ, of being made alive with Christ, of being seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, it's through that gift you've been saved from your spiritual death and all that that means. From being children of wrath. You're saved from what we all deserve, which is to face God's judgment and to be cut off from Him with eternal destruction for all eternity. You've been saved from that. And so, of course, it's not by your own doing. It's a gift from God. Of course, it's not a result of your works. You can't boast about it. No one can boast about it. The Apostle Paul couldn't boast about it. Now, if this is news to you, maybe you're here tonight, maybe you've never really got that before, never really understood, all these Christians say you're saved by grace, what does that really mean? Or maybe you've literally never heard it before. What I want to say to you is this gift is offered to you, but you need to receive it. And that's why it says you're saved by grace through faith. Faith means trust. Faith means you accept the gift. Faith is confidence that God's gift saves you. That's all it is. But if you don't accept a gift, then you don't receive the gift. If someone gives you a gift and you refuse it, no, I can't accept that, then it is not yours. You must receive the gift. So if you are here tonight and you've never received God's pure gift of salvation, accept the gift. Trust in Jesus. Put your confidence in Him. Have faith in Him. And you will be raised from your spiritual death. And you will be seated with God in the heavens. Or maybe, maybe you received this gift a long time ago. Maybe this is kind of old news to you. You still think it's great, you explain it to other people, but, you know, it's just kind of lost some of its zing. Yeah, it's become like a familiar piece of furniture. Or maybe an artwork, beautiful painting. When you buy it, you hang it on your wall and every time you walk by it, for the first few weeks you stop and you take in its beauty. But after a few months, you just walk by. You don't even notice it anymore. Sometimes we Christians can be like that with this gift. At first it was the most amazing thing you've ever heard. And you'd stop and look at it and be, wow, it's so beautiful. It's so precious. It's so amazing. But now you just kind of like walk on by. Hey, I've been there. And I think the answer is to think really again about what you've been saved from. And how deep the sin goes. Maybe you can even ask God to reveal to you a little more of just how broken you really are without Christ. And when you see that a little more, you see the gift a little more.
Or maybe you're one of these people who believes what I've just been saying. You believe the text. You believe in the gift. But you don't really believe it for you. Maybe you believe it for other people. Maybe you've even explained it to other people. Hey, friend, you're saved by grace. Trust in Jesus and you'll be saved. You'll be right with God. But deep down in yourself, you're thinking, I'm just too far gone. I'm just too sinful. There's that thing I do that no one knows about. If they knew, they'd be shocked. God knows, and so I'm sure God, God has condemned me. I want to serve God, but really, I just, I'm not sure really if I'm even saved. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt that this grace, it's for other people? Not for you? Or maybe you know it up here, but you just don't know it in here. You just haven't really believed it deep down in your heart. There was an example of this, I think, in the film Goodwill Hunting. People seen that film? I think it's a great film. Comes with a warning, language warning, and other warnings. And I'm going to spoil it a little bit, okay? But you've had 20 years to watch it, right? So I think it's fair. Goodwill Hunting is this troubled boy genius, okay? Will Hunting is his name, played by Matt Damon. And he's, he's uh, an orphan who's been bounced around from foster family to foster family in a rough part of the neighborhood in Boston. And... People don't know it, but he's an out-of-the-box genius. And he kind of keeps getting into these fights. And one fight was particularly bad, and he was arrested and, and had to appear before court. And the judge was going to send him to prison for three months. But this physics professor at Harvard had discovered his genius and thought he was like, once-in-a-generation kind of mind. And he lobbied the judge and said, look, instead of sending him to prison, put him under my care and we'll do math. <laughs> be like prison for some people. All right, <laughs> prison would be better. <laughs> we'll do math together. <laughs> the judge is like, oh, yeah, that's fair. Uh, well, the judge agreed on the condition that Will Hunting would see a psychologist once a week and work with him, who would work with him through his problems. Okay, so Will Hunting doesn't go to prison and he's working with this math professor, working on complex problems that even the math professor can't solve. Will Hunting solves his piece of cake, so easy, blah, blah, blah. But he starts meeting with this psychologist who's played by Robin Williams. No, you know the good Robin Williams films when he has a beard, okay? So he's got a beard and he... He plays the character beautifully. And at first, Will Hunting wants nothing to do with it. He just sits there, doesn't say anything. You know, he won't open up. He won't engage. Then Robin Williams' character you know, eventually starts prying him open and sharing about himself. And they, they kind of become, eventually they become close. It's really significant. 
what's happening to Will Hunting as he comes to terms with who he is and why he's like the way he is. And it turns out that all this aggression that's been expressing itself through violence really goes back to abuse that he, he suffered as a boy in these foster homes. Abused again and again, like so many. And there's a very moving scene right at the end of the film when they're really saying goodbye to one another. They've, they've, they've worked through the therapy and Will Hunting has really turned a significant corner and Robin Williams' character has one thing left for him to learn. And they've been talking about the abuse. And he said, Will, you know what happened to you? It was not your fault. Because you know so often victims of abuse, they blame themselves. And Will said, yeah, I I know. And Robin Williams said, no, Will... It's not your fault. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Will, it's not your fault. And this goes on for 10 times. I counted it last time I watched it. Will, it's not your fault. I know. Will, it's not your fault. I know. Until he goes, Will, it's not your fault. I know. And then he says, Will, it's not your fault. And right at that moment, Will Hunting bursts into tears and they embrace because for the first time Will has actually accepted that what happened to him really was not his fault he knew it up here he knew it intellectually but he didn't believe it in here he still blamed himself and we can be like that with this good news friends you can know I'm saved by God's gift you can know you're saved by grace through faith You can know it up here without really fully accepting it down here. And that's what you need to do. That God loves you. God has saved you. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? So the conclusion of our passage this evening is in verse 10. The final point in the argument that began at verse 1. Verse 10 is the result of all this. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You notice it began with walking and it ends with walking. You were walking previously as zombies, spiritually dead, following the ways of the world, following the evil one, following your own desires. That's how you were walking. Now that you've been raised with Christ, made alive with Him, raised with Him, seated with Him, saved by grace, you walk again. But you walk differently. You walk in the good deeds that God has prepared. Now, here you're going, wait, he just said you're not saved by works. And you're not. You're saved by grace. So why does he talk about works now again? 
First of all, he calls them good works. He didn't call them good before. Did you notice that? And second, really the emphasis is on his work. You are his workmanship. It's not about your works, it's about his. We are his work. We are his product. We are what he has made. It's not about what we do, it's about what he makes. And he makes us. Created in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, through our union with Christ. We've died with Christ, we've been raised with Christ, seated with Christ, which has given us new life. We're new creations. We're His product, made in Christ Jesus. And as His work, as His product, He does want us to walk in good deeds. He does want us to live in a way that fits our relationship with Him. Because He is a holy God, a good God, a loving God, a merciful God. He wants us to be like that. To share in the family likeness. But just in case you might be tempted then to boast of the good things that you might do, they have been prepared by God. He set them up for you to walk in them. Even the good works that you do, once you've been saved by grace, once you've been created in Christ Jesus, you can't take any credit for it. He set them up for you to walk in. All the glory still goes to Him. And it's part of being His workmanship. He's made us to walk a different way. Not as zombies, but as His precious Loved people. So, you were once zombies. You've now been made alive with Christ, seated with Christ in the heavens. Therefore, you're saved by God's gift. You are His product to walk His way in a way that's pleasing to him because we've been made alive with christ let's pray gracious god we thank you that you have made us recreated us in christ having made us alive and raised us up with him we pray that we will delight in your goodness your kindness to us in christ jesus your mercy your love And that that mercy and love would so inspire us to live for you, to walk your way. No longer following the ways of the world, the devil or the flesh. But as your new creations, as your workmanship, desiring to please you as our Heavenly Father. Help us to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.